0: Entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that views, and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and should not be interpreted for official policy, or position of any entity. Aside from possibly cash, like, more, also, and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible for you. Should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready.
1: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Oh, hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing very well, Stuart. Thank you for asking. How are you That's doing? That's
0: great. Uh, I'm I'm doing wonderful.
1: I think like 99% of the time when people ask me how I'm doing, I'm just like, I'm doing fine, and I just like walk right past them, and I don't ask. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, in my head, I'm like, I don't care how you're doing, and you don't care how I am doing, so I'm just going to so keep walking. Ask? Yeah. It's just a formality. Yeah. Speaking of formalities... Paul, are you with us, and can you tell the audience about uh, what we do on this show?
2: <laughs> I think my soul left my body. Yeah, <laughs> I'm back now. This is an internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We also tend to spend the upfront time getting to know our guest. and so if you don't like making human connections and are really just sort of in this for the knowledge, feel free to skip ahead and be worse off for it. Mm-hmm.
0: And by the way, our uh, chief resident, his wife, skips ahead.
2: No, i say there's probably a (laughs) darkness behind her eyes. And, you know, I'm just (laughs) I'm sure she's perfectly lovely otherwise. (laughs) Okay. All right. So our guest for tonight is Dr.
1: Tahitani Oji. She is a rheumatologist and epidemiologist with research focused primarily on osteoarthritis and gout. She is currently leading updates to the American College of Rheumatology Treatment Guidelines for both osteoarthritis and gout. She has been engaged in developing a new classification criteria for multiple rheumatic diseases. She's had continuous peer-reviewed grant funding since 2003 and has published over 190 peer-reviewed publications to date. Her work has been recognized by, with the 2014 American College of Rheumatology Henry Kunkel Young Investigator Award for Outstanding and Promising Independent Contributions to Rheumatology Research. She has been on the boards for two international societies and was previously the chair of the FDA Arthritis Advisory Committee. In addition to research, clinical work, and teaching, one of her key roles is to mentor trainees and junior faculty in MSK disease-related research. To that end, she was awarded the 2016 Robert Dawson Evans Research Mentoring Award. Dr. neoji is a fantastic educator, and we are so excited to have her on the show today. On this first episode with Dr. neoji we talk all about the diagnosis, uh, the pathophysiology, and get into the treatment of acute flares of gout. Then on part two, which will be coming out next week, we will be talking more about uh, urate lowering therapy, uh, the controversy there, and also we answer all your random questions from social media because there were a lot of them. So without further delay, here's our wonderful discussion with Dr. Tahina Neoji. We, we're going to talk all about gout. We got tons of questions from social media, but uh, the first thing we always ask you is, can you give a one-liner to the audience to describe yourself?
3: Sure. I am a rheumatologist and epidemiologist. Um, I love music. And I think one distinguishing feature of me is I'm likely to be the smallest female that anyone is to encounter.
1: What? Oh my gosh. I did not know that. (laughs) That's yeah, I often statement.
3: will have people come up to me at a conference and sort of tap me on my shoulder and say, you know, are you Tahina Neoji? And I'll say, yes, how did you know? You didn't even see my name tag. Did so-and-so tell you to look for the smallest little Indian woman you can find at the conference? And that's how they find me.
1: Uh, hmm. Actually, Paul Williams, the smallest man you'll ever see at a conference. Oh, I'm Actually, sure that's true. not true. Sure <laughs> not. <laughs> Spiritually. <laughs> okay. Uh, Paul, Stewart, did you guys want to ask anything?
0: Yeah. What's the best advice that you've ever received as a physician?
3: Oh, as a physician? Um, as a
0: whatever, you can fill in the blank.
3: Yeah, I guess I was thinking about it sort of more uh, from a research perspective that, um, you know, it's, it's okay to fail, um, because if you are, uh, you know, you need to have big ideas. Um, sometimes you have to take a big risk and sometimes they're not going to work out, but you, you learn a lot from those failures. Um, You learn why that might've failed, um, et cetera. So when I first started out in research, none of my studies were working out, but I still got so much encouragement that each one of those failures were in, in fact successes because they were getting me closer to um, studies that would eventually work out. I think for, as a physician, I think the best advice I've been given is, um, uh, you know, just always being honest when, when something isn't going right, just being really honest with the patient and their families. And I think, um, patients and families have, you know, always appreciate that.
0: Yeah. It kind of goes on with failure. So being honest with your own failures.
1: Yeah. I, I have kind of an obsession with not necessarily reading biographies, but I, I enjoy like listening to biographies. So there's a fair amount of like interview type podcast where you can hear like basically someone's like life story and usually they're people who have done something successful and they always they always talk about failing what they learned from the failure how that kind of got them to the next step of things or led them down a path they never would have expected and that's we've that's why we started adding in this question about like failure and challenges because I don't, I don't remember it as a young person coming up. I don't remember it ever being stressed to me how important that was and how you should like not be discouraged by failure, but just sort of think of it as like, okay, I failed here, but I can learn something from it and I'm going to keep trying. And I just, I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how my life would have been different if I had learned this earlier, but it, you know, it's, I still have a lot of life left. I like to think Paul and Stewart, <laughs> but uh, I, I really Yay. love talking about that. So thank you for sharing that. Paul and Stewart, did you guys want to give a pick of the week before we get on to talking about gout? No.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm fairly tapped out. I don't know. Have I recommended? Uh, Are you talking REM? Remy, the podcast with uh, Scott Ackerman and, and Adam Scott.
1: I know you've recommended it to me. I think before. you have. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think I recommend which one, is uh, one are you talking u two to me, which is a, a different one. This is a spin off oh, of that. That's is oh, yeah. really stupid. It's I, I listened to the two Are two You hours.
0: Talking You Two to Me just just from your uh your recommendation, <laughs> and I realized I it was yeah I don't know favorite, that go I don't know what theory? I think about that one.
1: My favorite part about the Are You Talking u Two to Me is that they're both named Scott and they both sound kind of alike, so it's really hard yeah. to tell who's talking at any it
0: given was, time. It had nothing to do with u two. I was very disturbed.
2: It's yeah. Treat yourself and actually read the iTunes reviews, which go along with your, your favorite <laughs> yeah, reference. They, I think that was a, that was the most uh,
0: that that was a the most hilarious thing about it, just reading the, the the reviews. Oh my gosh!
2: I'll, I'll I give a get, an hour reading those. Yeah, I'll give a podcast the encyclopedic and comprehensive compendium of YouTube knowledge, and then never talk about the band, which is spectacular. <laughs> it's kind of my favorite thing about
1: it. There, there's a podcast that I really, um, that I've never seen, but the cover image and the title, it's called Gilmore guys. And it's just like, I listen to that one too. (laughs) It's just like, their reviews are some of the funniest things I've ever read. If you read their iTunes reviews and, and it's just two guys like recapping every episode of Gilmore girls. And my, my sister listens to it, but it's, it's, uh, it just cracks me up the cover. Anyway,
2: well, they've had Manzukus on a couple of times, and the co host, Demi Digibay, is actually one of the funniest human beings, I think, on the planet. So it's, 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 maybe I should actually like listen. So, yeah, I think <laughs> it's it pretty funny. funny.
1: Okay. All right, now we definitely need to talk about gout because the audience—we're <laughs> losing audience members by the second.
2: Uh, it was Tah- nice to catch up, guys.
1: Tahina, thank you for uh, thank you for sitting through that. I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> sure, that was no problem.
1: Okay. All right, so we we're going to start with a case. Uh, this could be any case that I've seen many cases of gout at Lack. So this is kind of an amalgamation. I was seeing Mister T. He's a 73-year-old African American male. He's got high blood pressure, CKD stage three, type type two diabetes. He's on metformin, and uh, he's coming in with 24 hours of acute right midfoot pain. There's redness, there's swelling. It's very tender. He says it's about a seven out of ten, but if you touch it, it's a ten out of ten. And he couldn't even wear a shoe to the office, so he's kind of wearing sandals and limping in. So. I wanted to know, like, just from the history alone, and maybe you can go through the history first, and then we'll talk about the exam. Is it possible to make the diagnosis of gout? Because, you know, if it's, if it's not in that first MTP joint, and this guy has it sort of in the midfoot, like going up towards the ankle, is it, what, what can clue us in that this might be gout?
3: Sure. So while the first MTP is the most common joint, um, anywhere in the foot, ankle, and knee is sort of the next most common presentation. Um, The acute onset. um, So I would really ask, you know, did this really come on suddenly or gradually? Um, That acuteness um, helps. The the redness, the pain, the swelling, the tenderness, etc. The exquisite tenderness, you know, the classic, I can't even have a bed sheet on my skin, I can't even put my shoes and socks on, etc., I would want to know about trauma. Could this be a, a fracture? Um, but you know, in 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 the absence of a history of trauma, this is seems like a pretty classic case in a in an individual who is an older male who has hypertension and who has, uh, renal insufficiency, has diabetes, all the classic comorbidities that go along with gout. Um, if we were in a a place where we had access to MSK ultrasound, it would be useful to be able to, um, look at that. Uh, but I think this is a pretty classic story and other than fracture, um, I would be pretty comfortable with putting gout very high on this differential.
1: Mm.
0: Does he take HCTZ, Matt?
1: Well, uh, yeah, let's say he does. So how much, you know, is that just like make this even more of a slam dunk, I imagine? or
3: You know, in the setting of CKD stage three, um, I think that in and of itself will be such a big impact on hyperuricemia. But yes, yeah, certainly hydrochlorothiazide would be a, 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 a contributor. Um, one other thing I should say is I'd also want to make sure that, uh you know, there doesn't seem to be any signs of skin breakdown or, you know, other concerns of in- infection, yeah. especially in this diabetic.
0: Okay. Do we see the same thing with chlorothaladone as well?
3: Uh Generally, any diuretics um, can increase serum urate.
2: Paul? <laughs> Just... Just want to give room to breathe.
3: How um, <laughs> <laughs> I, how, how useful uh, to you
2: is the diet history? I feel like the residents tend to go bonkers and sort of you know. Have you been eating smoked shrimp and just they yeah. they really sort of hone in on that? Is that useful historically? If you have these other features that go along with it?
3: No, um, I mean I think it's it's generally useful just uh, for understanding potential flares, but in terms of risk for incident gout, you know, I think we talk a lot about these factors that can uh, contribute to hyperuricemia, but really there haven't been any good uh, studies to really demonstrate that these have a large impact. Um, And I think in, in fact, what ends up happening when we focus so much on these dietary factors is there ends up being a lot of patient blaming and a lot of patient shaming. And, um, the bigger, you know, bigger factor for individuals like this is usually renal urate handling um, and genetics, you know, et cetera. So I think the emphasis regarding diet should be more about thinking about whether or not any factors could be triggering flares rather than thinking about it as um, major contributors to hyperuricemia leading to gout.
0: Okay, so patient blaming and shaming doesn't work. Got it.
3: <laughs> well there there you know have been some good qualitative studies that have um f- shown from a patient perspective that they feel embarrassed to even bring their gout symptoms to their physicians because of the stigma related to gout and that they they there must be something wrong that they've done um and they feel guilty and so um it's actually detrimental for uh, at least from our patients perspectives that they don't feel comfortable talking to their pa- uh, physicians about these symptoms and the possibility of gout
0: that's interesting that's so yeah, I've never yeah. heard of, heard that actually, Paul. I just you?
2: saw this today. I had a patient too when I, I came in with a hot joint, really no antecedent trauma at all. It just it all kind of screamed gout to me. And when I said, "I think I think what we're dealing with here is gout," the first question is, "What did I do wrong, or what could I have done differently to prevent this?" Like there really? was really, wow. yeah, it was. So it's it's amazing that you bring that up today. Like I I literally just went through this hours ago.
1: <laughs> well. I, I wanted to ask a question. So our, one of our actually founding members, Tony Sideri, is a, a rheumatologist, uh, recently graduated rheumatologist, and he, he had sent me a paper that he, he recently published. One of the things he, and this was on gout for the kind of for the everyday practice. One of the things he included in there was that the ACR, American College of Rheumatology and ULAR, which I don't really know what that stands for, but European something.
3: European League Against Rheumatism and and they and <laughs> love it. I yeah.
1: That's the, you the AC, I know you're part of the ACR. You guys yes. their name is a little cooler uh than
3: Yes, well <laughs> there's a whole other universe of Lars. There's a whole set of leagues against uh, uh, rheumatism. So there's LLAR, oh, that's amazing. There's Ilar, Panlar, Aplar. Um yeah, there's a lot of Lar leagues against rheumatism in the world. Okay. Someone's got
0: to come up with like a comic book uh presentation <laughs> it, for you guys. Exactly.
3: <laughs>
1: Well, I wanted to ask, they they make this prediction calculator, and it's supposedly to, uh, even without getting joint fluid, you can sort of guess whether or not this is gout. Is that something so, you find clinically useful?
3: So, um... The they includes me as um, the first author on this, so I'm very happy to talk about this. Okay. So we developed classification criteria for a number of rheumatic diseases, and these classification criteria are intended to enable investigators to enroll a relatively homogeneous group of individuals with a disease of interest um, into the study. So observational studies, randomized controlled trials, so that we have a clear sense of who is in a trial. So, these classification criteria are not intended as diagnostic criteria because diagnoses require a whole host of other uh, skills of a, of a physician, including thinking about differential diagnoses, the epidemiology of the particular area, for example, the rheumatoid classification criteria. If you apply them um, in a country where tuberculosis is highly prevalent, you know you you might be miss identifying someone with TB, arthritis as RA, etc. So for a variety of reasons, classification criteria are not the same as diagnostic criteria. However, we do see value in looking at the classification criteria uh, from an educational perspective because they do identify the major key features of a disease. So that calculator that we put online was really just to make it easier to, you know, figure out the score and does someone meet that threshold? The other thing about these classification criteria is that it's on a spectrum of probability from 0% to 100%. So just because someone just misses that threshold does not mean that they may not have that disease. They just don't meet that threshold. So having said all that, it is, I think, I use it as an educational tool, but it is not something that... Um, you know, should be used to say definitively this person does or does not have that disease.
1: Okay. You you mentioned that MSK ultrasound might be something that you would use to potentially identify gout. How how much train? like we just did an episode on point of care ultrasound. How much training does that take? Like, can your everyday primary care doc, do you think they see enough gout that they'd be able to identify it with an ultrasound?
3: You know, I do think that's, training is needed. And I uh, personally um, didn't train in it. And if I had the time, I definitely would go back and do the training. I think it's an important physical exam skill to have. And all of our uh, fellows um, do get trained. And I'm very fortunate that I'm at um, Boston University School of Medicine, where Jean Kisson is sort of a nationally renowned MSK ultrasound um, uh person and he, he trains um, people around the country. So, you know, when, if Gene Kisson were to put the probe exactly right on the joint, I, even I can see the double contour <laughs> sign. Um, but if I were to try to take the probe and do it myself, it's not so simple. Yeah. But I do think that with, you know, some training, at least for major joints, uh, major common joints, that it can be a useful tool, even for those that are not experts like Gene Kisson
1: and stuart is putting stuart has i don't know he's uh he just put up a justice league against rheumatism uh s- sign on <laughs> skype here thank you stuart that's not at all You're distracting welcome. to me as uh we're trying to conduct the the interview here stuart uh did i did i forget to mention that usually as a part of our pre-interview disclaimer i tell you that stuart has adhd and uh i, ca- I can't be we just we just all kind of let him do his thing there Um, anyway,
0: I'm still, I'm, I'm listening to every single word that you're saying still though.
1: Paul, did you have any other follow-up questions about like the diagnosis before we sort of move on a bit here?
2: Well, I think we are sort of this, we were transitioning nicely into the physical exam, I think. So I was just wondering if there are any specific physical examination findings, ultrasonography notwithstanding, that you find particularly helpful in making the diagnosis.
3: Um, you know, I think, um, when the erythema extends far beyond a joint, it makes gout unlikely. In the midfoot, it's challenging because there's so many joints there. But the example I'm thinking of is, you know, if you're wondering about gout in the ankle, but the erythema is going all the way up to the mid-tibia, I'd be more concerned about cellulitis than I would be about gout itself. Um, And then the other is, I mean, I think that's where um, often um, people... Have difficulty in distinguishing? Could this be a gout flare, or is this cellulitis um, when it's extending beyond the ankle? And so, really examining the ankle, feeling for joint line tenderness, joint movement, um, and trying to palpate an effusion is is helpful in trying to distinguish between gout and, and cellulitis.
1: It's yeah. Sometimes I, I mean, uh, sometimes clinically it can be it just it can be difficult because like. The person has bad skin and they're, they, they have this, you know, usually if it's, if it's in the midfoot or the ankle, that's where I've had more of a, a problem trying to identify it. Or, or sometimes if, if you get someone with gout in like the wrist, you know, just the areas that are not as common, it, it can be a little bit more like, okay, is this gout or not? So how do you decide like when you're going to put a needle and, and look for gout?
3: So, you know, overall, um, crystal-proven diagnoses are uncommon. Uh, in the health professional follow-up study, only about 7% had a crystal-proven diagnosis. Um, just to sort of highlight how uncommon it is to get a crystal-proven diagnosis, um, even in a, a you know, a, a cohort of health professionals. So for me as a rheumatologist, I try always to aspirate the joint, Um Now, you know, sometimes it's really challenging that it's very tender to the point where you can't even properly palpate to landmark the joint, such as when it's a really inflamed first MTP joint. Um, so yes, there are, there are certainly instances where I think that it's going to be, um, too painful for the patient and I may not be able to adequately get into the joint. Um, to make the uh, that effort or the attempt worthwhile. But I, as much as I can, I try to get a crystal proven diagnosis.
1: Do you worry about, uh, so when I was reading about gout uh, to prepare for this, it seems like th- the pain peaking within 24 hours is like a big tip off that this could be gout. And then a lot of the times by the time the patient can get in to see you, it might be day three or day four and the joints already starting to like, kind of become less painful Right. At that point, does your doing doing like arthrocentesis? Does the yield go down trying to look for crystals? Because and and that's the other thing. Like if you're the primary care and you're not trained to look at under the polarized like the microscope, right. um, is it practical to do, or can you send it to the lab? Or do you have to worry like if it's already a couple of days and it's going to take a day or two before the lab looks at it? It's it's just going to be hard to tell anything.
3: Right. Yeah. So it's still worthwhile. There will still be crystals around. Uh, even in intercritical periods, extracellular MSU crystals can be seen though with um, lower yield um, and certainly uh, labs, you know, certified labs should be able to look for crystals um, on, when they're doing the fluid evaluation. And yeah, it is challenging to ask busy clinicians, primary care physicians to, uh, you know, then also go and look at it under the polarizing microscope. Having said that, it is one of the most satisfying things to see those crystals. And whenever I see, when I run out of the room, the microscope room, looking for anybody, and sometimes I'll even bring in the caretaking staff to say, "Come and look at this. This is so cool." And then be like, "Oh, is that why it hurts so much? It looks like it's like needling you, you know." So I enjoy it, and I think um, uh, it, it is really one of those cool things that uh, always brings a smile to my face.
1: Can you, can you just remind us, uh, what the classic, what it looks like under the microscope?
3: Sure. So it's a, a, the classic description is a needle shaped, uh, crystal. And, um, there's a polarizer on the polarizing microscope that's got an arrow. And if, if the crystal is in that, the same direction in which the arrow is pointing, then, and the crystal is yellow. And then if you move the polarizer and the, Arrow is now perpendicular to that crystal, and the crystal is now blue. That is the classic uh, appearance of an MSU crystal.
1: Got it. So when you're trying to like, let's say I, 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 maybe you could recap like so, how can our listener be confident that they've got a diagnosis of gout? Like what's a common presentation? And then, uh, then I have a follow-up question. Uh, I don't want to give it too many at once. Yeah, sure. probably, probably so
3: um, So acute onset. Um, you know, sort of comes on suddenly, classically, um, within 24 hours, often patients will say that they start to feel something, especially patients who've had a few flares at, you know, under their belt, by the time they've gotten a diagnosis, they'll be able to say that I, I know it's coming on, I feel something like I feel like the joint is tingling, or there's something some sensation that they have. Often, the flare will look um, start overnight, but n- not necessarily. The, the pain will, as I said, uh, reach its maximum, um, fairly quickly within usually, um, 24 hours. Um, erythema, swelling, tenderness, exquisite pain, you know, exquisitely painful, um, with what I think of as peripheral sensitization with, um, uh, you know, inability to even touch the skin. So the, you know, classic that the bedsheet can't. Uh, you know, I can't bear the touch of the bed sheet on my skin, unable to uh, wear, uh, sorry, bear weight if it's a lower extremity joint or, you know, use the joint. And then even without treatment, the flare should um, subside within s- sort of a week to maximum two weeks, usually sort of a seven to ten, 10 day period. However, with repeated flares without um, adequate management of the underlying cause of the gout, um, without management of the hyperuricemia, the flares become, may can become less and less classic, um, and they can be more prolonged. Um, they might not even have intercritical periods, and they might just have a chronic inflammatory arthritis.
1: Okay, so so then it starts to get complicated in a little bit. Uh, yeah, that that that's when I probably would be calling you for help. Can the next question I wanted to ask is just can you how do you explain it to a patient once they have gout like how do you explain that to them I, I find that's always useful for us in the audience to hear how you would explain it to a patient.
3: Sure. So, um, you know, sort of depending on where I think the patient is at in terms of understanding gout, if it's their first flare and they're in the midst of their flare, I'm not trying to do a whole big educational piece. <laughs> I'll wait until the flare has subsided and they, you know, come back for an outpatient visit. But generally I explain that um, gout is caused by elevation of urate or uric acid in the blood. Um, but there are many more people out in the world that have elevated urates in their blood than who have gout. So there are other factors that are are leading these individuals who have high urates to also develop gout, but the main physiologic, the main culprit is um, elevated urate, and that um, urate can crystallize, and the body um, develops an inflammatory response to that those that those crystals in the joint, and that's what leads to the swelling, the pain, the redness, um, and uh, so to manage gout, there are two things that we have to do. So when they're having a gout flare, that's like, you know, the joint is on fire and we have to use treatments to put the fire out. But just by putting the fire out doesn't mean that that is going to prevent the fires from coming back. So we have to do something else to prevent the fires from coming back. And I then move on to a bathtub analogy. And I talk about how to think about the urate levels in your body being like the water level in a bathtub how do you drain a bathtub? Well, you um, open the drain and let the water flow down the drain. But for many people with gout, that drain is clogged up and we can't really drain the water well. So the um, ways in which we can manage gout are by trying to clear that drain to let the water drain better. But if um, someone's, and that's sort of like with how the kidneys function, but if the kidney function isn't good enough for us to try to optimize that, then we got to turn off the water faucet. And so we have medications to try to turn off the water faucet, and then when that really doesn't work, we've got a bucket that we can use to just dump out the water. And so those are sort of like how we talk about the treatment decisions or treatment options, um, and that we got to keep that water level from overflowing um, because that's when you know you'll have an electrical short and the fire will start.
1: Yeah. When, when you're talking about the the bucket to empty out the water, would you, are you talking about steroids or are you talking about joint injection? Or, or... So
3: I'm talking about peglodicase. Okay. So um, peglodicase is a pegylated version of uricase, which is an enzyme that we lost millennia ago, millions of years ago. Um, and so this just breaks down uric acid into a soluble end product that can be excreted.
1: Okay. Very good. Not, I'm not super familiar with that medication. It, I'm, I'm sure I learned it somewhere along the line.
3: <laughs> well, it's fairly, it's fairly new. It was um, FDA approved in 2009 or 2010. It's an intravenous treatment, and really, it's um, limited to, um, you know, severe uh, tophaceous ref- refractory tophaceous gout, and so primarily only used by rheumatologists presently.
1: Well, maybe we can come back as we go through the treatment, which I think uh, we're going to get to here shortly. I think Stuart might want to ask you something else first, but maybe we can refer back to your this analogy of the fire and the bathtub and emptying the water and things like because I think that'll be really useful. But Stuart, what are you you are you're, you're furiously <laughs> typing and searching over there? We really no, need a not- oh, live webcam of you during podcasts.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want that. No, I I just had a quick question to to see if you could briefly overview just the the underlying pathophysiology of gout. Um and specific because the the way that I approach it is a little bit different. Of course, I'm a, I'm kind of a nerd and so I try to tie in the purine salvage pathway and etc. Mm-hmm. But but how do you view the underlying pathophysiology of gout?
3: Sure. So the the predominant Okay, so You know, obviously hyperuricemia is a necessary but not sufficient cause of gout since the prevalence of hyperuricemia is about, um, you know, 20 some odd percent, whereas the prevalence of gout is only about 4%. So hyperuricemia is about five times more common. Nonetheless, you won't have gout unless you have hyperuricemia. Um, So, when talking about the pathophysiology of gout, I guess there's sort of two parts to that question. So, first of all, why do you get hyperuricemia to begin with? And the majority of patients have renal urate transport abnormalities um, that contribute to hyperuricemia. About two-thirds of urate is excreted through the kidneys, about one-third through the GI system. Um, and then... The other contribution of an elevated serum urate is through the endogenous, um, production of urate. And, um, so purine metabolism, uh, plays a role there. But it's, you know, the, the traditional teaching is that the endogenous production of urate is sort of a much smaller proportion of the contribution of hyperuricemia than the renal urate transport issues. And then there's been some interesting um uh, papers about the contribution of GI excretion as well, which um there's you know no pharma- pharmacologic therapies available right now that are leveraging that GI excretion pathway. So you so you have hyperuricemia and then you have the inf- you know the crystallization and um the flares. So we don't know enough yet about who is at risk among those with hyperuricemia, who is at risk for developing MSU crystal deposition. Um, but some studies have shown that about a quarter of people with quote-unquote asymptomatic hyperuricemia can have evidence of MSU deposition by imaging. And then we don't yet really know what leads people to actually then have an inflammatory response to the MSU deposition and um you know and then go on to develop tophi what we do know about the pathophysiology of the flares is that once the MSU crystals are are present um they can interact with um you know the you know cells in the joint they can um uh, lead it leads to Uh, NALP-3 inflammasome activation, which leads to pro-interleukin-1-beta being cleaved into the mature form of interleukin-1-beta. And so IL-1-beta is the key cytokine that leads to the intense inflammatory response.
1: Which is the fire that you were talking about earlier.
3: Exactly. And then the TOFI are not just these inert masses of crystals, but they're actually a chronic inflammatory granulomatous reaction with uh, innate uh, and uh, adaptive immune cells and osteoclasts and osteoblasts. So they're biologically active. And, and um, so when they are in the joint and sort of persistently there without adequate management of the hyperuricemia, it can lead to um, bony erosions and uh, joint destruction.
1: So, I want to talk about let's to go back to your analogy. The, when someone's joints on fire, let's say Mister T, our patient that we started out with, we, he's got CKD. It's it's mild. We'll say he's like CKD three A. So his eGFR is like forty five or above. What and he's got he's diabetic, hypertensive. What what treatment are we going to offer him? Is there and for the, for his acute flare, and then we can kind of go on to chronic management.
3: Yeah. So, you know, for this flare, um, it, it's really tough. We don't, we can't use NSAIDs with a CKD. Um, we would like to avoid steroids if we can, given his type 2 diabetes. Um, colchicine is still an option. Even with a CKD3, we can still dose it. Um, and given that the pain started about 24 hours ago, um, it could still be effective. One of the issues with colchicine is that it's less effective when started, um, further on into the flare, you know, so colchicine is certainly an option. I think, If you were seen by a rheumatologist, um, that, you know, possibly one may consider an injection if, um, it's an area that's palpable that, um, you know, you could landmark and get a needle into. Um. But honestly, sometimes, you know, just say his, just say his CKD status is even worse, or he is on another, other medications beyond just metformin that may be contraindicated in the setting of CKD stage three with concomitant colchicine. So then what you're left with really is, um, glucocorticoids. And so even though it's not ideal for a type, someone with type two diabetes, um, for a short ish course, Sometimes that's what we we have to do. Ideally, we could, um, if we you know have it available, we can use an IL-1 inhibitor.
1: I wanted I want to ask you a specific about. So, our colleague Dr. Sideri was pointing out to me, or Tony was pointing out to me that. Uh, he commonly sees the mistake where someone just puts someone on steroids for four or five days and then Mm -hmm. stops them. And then the patient has a rebound, which is something that I wasn't aware of. So how do you dose the steroids and how do you taper off of them?
3: Right. So, you know, first when a patient, so so if a patient has established gout and is educated about their gout and can distinguish, you know, can distinguish their other, Aches and pains from a gout flare, then we like to use uh, medications in the pocket strategy so that at the first onset of those symptoms of a flare, they can get started with treatment. And so often you can get away with um, a lower dose or a shorter course because you can almost abort the flare entirely. But for example, for Mr. T, um, if this is the first time I'm seeing him, I'm not really sure how he's going to respond, I might start at um, you know, again, depending on how inflamed it looks, et cetera, I might start at 30 milligrams of prednisone. And I typically decrease by five milligrams every two days. So that would give a 12 day course. Um, and especially for the first flare where we really don't know how he's going to respond, that sh- probably is going to be adequate. If it were a polyarticular flare, I might need to start at a higher dose. Um, so, but, it, you know, thirty milligrams a day um, for two days and decreasing by five milligrams every two days should be a, a, a reasonable course.
1: Okay, and for for NSAIDs, is it is it the dose? Let's let's just go with ibuprofen since it's sort of everywhere, it's generic and cheap. What what's what's a typical dose there?
3: Yeah, so again, uh, you know, if someone's already tried NSAIDs on their own, and I'll just ask them, well, what's worked for you? But you might start anywhere from 600 to 800 milligrams TID for the first few days, two or three days, um, maybe up to four days, depending on how bad the flare is, and then sort of decrease it to a lower dose, like maybe 400 TID for the remaining, you know, seven to 10 days. Okay, great.
2: I know that... Indomethacin is sort of the the old classic which I it sounds like it's sort of fallen out of favor. Do you have sort of a preferred uh set of choice and and how do you dose it?
3: Yeah, so I- interestingly, there's there are no data to say one particular NSAID is better than another, but it is true what you say that indomethacin has traditionally been thought to be the you know, one to use for gout. Um so depending on the patient's age, you know, GI risk, cardiovascular risk, uh, renal risk, et cetera, I may still use indomethacin, particularly in younger patients. Um, but otherwise, yeah, ibuprofen is um, reasonable. You
1: And you mentioned, you mentioned colchicine. I just wanted to go back to that one. Uh, I know we'll talk about it a little bit with prevention as well, but the the cost is an issue now right because it it was they they kind of yes. repurposed it they officially got it fda approved for gout even though people have been using it for what like 50 years or something and so now yeah. it's expensive but yeah. you mentioned you could still use it in ckd i feel like it's almost a myth people think you can't use it if someone has ckd how does that change your management if someone has has chronic kidney disease
3: right so i think you know one thing is just if you're Ever unsure, just look it up. And I, you know, I'm always calculating the creatinine clearance and then I'm just looking up the dosing just to make sure I'm not, you know, remembering incorrectly. But um, if they have a sufficient degree of renal insufficiency, you can still use the colchicine gout flare regimen, which is 1.2 milligrams immediately, 0.6 milligrams an hour later. And that's all that was done in the trial. And so we're left with, well, what should we do after that? And so I usually go with 0.6 milligrams twice daily until the attack resolves. Or if for whatever reason they can't tolerate the colchicine, I'll switch to the NSAIDs or prednisone, et cetera. For someone with sufficient degree of renal insufficiency, you can do this regimen, but then you cannot repeat a gout flare regimen again within a two-week period or if they have a sufficient degree of renal insufficiency and they're on a cytochrome P453A4 inhibitor or um, like a, a, well, a a cytochrome P453A4 inhibitor is the one to that's contraindicated. And so that includes things that the common ones that we, you know, really should be looking for is something like diltiazem. Okay. Um, And then statins are also an issue. um, But I think, You know, with close monitoring and for a short course, it may be okay. But I always am very careful about counseling the patient, and um, you know, documenting that and making sure that they you know call us if they have any symptoms. But I I do have one other thing to say. I I forgot. Um, If someone has renal insufficiency and they're already on colchicine for prophylaxis, they can't then use colchicine additionally for gout flare management
2: before we go too far down the rabbit hole of the urate lowering therapy because i have a feeling um i i think i know what we're going to be focusing on but are there any instances where you would start that during an initial gout attack like you had to say someone's first episode is there any reason where you might start urate lowering therapy at that time
3: yeah so again i wouldn't do it during the flare but once right. that first flare has resolved if if someone has um evidence of tophi i would start uh urate lowering therapy because while we think classically that someone, their first presentation of gout should be a flare, there are some people who don't have a prominent inflammatory response. They actually have TOFI that are, have been there, um, and they just never presented with a flare. So presence of TOFI definitely. And in the 20, in the 2012 ACR treatment guidelines, CKD stage two was also another indication for starting urate luring therapy, um, after the first flare with the rationale being that these are individuals that you want to avoid using NSAIDs in. Um, and so if you can get them started on your egg therapy and prevent their flares down the road, you um, save them from being exposed to NSAIDs for um, future flares. Oh, and sorry, and also if someone has a history of kidney stones.
0: What, what are your thoughts on using topical NSAIDs during acute flares, especially for small joints like the fingers and toes?
3: Mm-hmm. And I think that's really a great Um, question. I've not ever uh, really thought about it. And I'm I'm feeling a little embarrassed that I never thought about it. Um, You know, we're so focused on thinking about osteoarthritis for topical or topical insets for osteoarthritis. I think it's a really compelling uh, question, you know, compelling um, therapy to think about. As I mentioned earlier, earlier, Scout flares have, you know, they're a great model for peripheral sensitization. You know, the, the skin is acutely sensitized. It's so tender, you can't even touch the skin. So I would hypothesize that topical NSAIDs would help with that um, very you know, superficial peripheral sensitization of the skin. I don't know how much it would deal with that intense inflammation in the joint, um, but I think it's worth looking at as... Even as an adjunct to whatever other therapy there may be that may be used for osteoarthritis, um, we know that the efficacy of topical NSAIDs are you know probably about similar to oral NSAIDs, but you don't have that same intense inflammation in osteoarthritis. So I think it's hard to extrapolate its efficacy and what it would be like in gout.
0: Have you ever given it to a patient
1: for acute gout in the past?
3: I have not, but I think I'd like to try it just to see what happens.
1: I think, yeah. So, when I was uh, when I was practicing at a different hospital in the past, I had more easy access to topical NSAIDs. And when patients, sometimes I would see a lot of patients. They'd be like, "Oh yeah, like five days ago, I had terrible gout, but it's still hurting me. Is there anything you can give me?" And I don't want because of comorbidities, I don't want to give them steroids or NSAIDs. Uh, at least systemic NSAIDs. So I've I've used topical NSAIDs in that situation, but I haven't used it like when they're at the peak, like first 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. That was at the Kashak Ro- Royal College of Medicine for those who are interested.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, the challenge in sort of knowing when you're sort of doing these N of 1 things is that the natural history is that the flare is going to resolve in sort of seven to ten days or you know so it's i think what in i think it merits a a proper study yeah
1: right right because paul did you have a question you look like you were
2: no that that's just my face
1: (laughs) 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 this has been another episode of the curbsiders it sure has bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. helps people discover the show and uh, helps us feel good about ourselves. Right, Stuart? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I'm tired.
1: (laughs) Uh, If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We also have pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. This is has been Dr. Matthew Watto.
0: And this is still Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham.
1: I can't even remember oh. what I normally say. This is crazy.
2: <laughs> Big shout out to our social media team, including this has been Paul Williams, and goodbye.
1: <laughs> Thank you to all of our curbsiders who help keep the show running, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Chris the Chu Man Chew on Facebook. And Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram. And, Stuart, I did it out of order just to freak you out because I
0: know... That's that's fine. <laughs> and thanks to Mr. T for being a, a good sport. By the way, did you know he had lymphoma? He probably had gout.
1: <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I, I, I wasn't actually certain he was still alive. He is. He's 66 years old. He's a great guy. I know.
0: You're gonna let us go. Okay. I, I couldn't even I don't even have time to think of a pun.
2: For gout? You don't have a flip not really okay. towing the line. I don't know. Come on, it's it's right there. <laughs>